0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. The Word of the Lord comes to us this evening from the book of Numbers, chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Numbers chapter 25. But before we read this passage, let me remind us of what's exactly going on in this book. In the book of Numbers, the Lord is leading his people through the wilderness from Mount Sinai to the promised land of Canaan, which the Lord was going to give to his people as their inheritance. Now, you may remember if you've been following along in this series that the Lord had already brought the people of Israel to the land of Canaan way back in chapter 13. But there the people rebelled and refused to enter the land because they were afraid of the land's inhabitants. They looked much stronger and scarier than they did. As a result, the Lord punished His people by sentencing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone in that wicked and rebellious generation died off. Well, by the time we get to our passage tonight, the people of Israel are now in their 40th year of wilderness wandering. And they've once again they've once, they've once again reached the outskirts of the promised land in the plains of Moab. Which means they are once again getting ready to take possession of the land of Canaan. There's just one problem, and that's the people of Moab. In chapter 22, we are told that when the people of Moab saw the people of Israel settle in the land just outside of their territory— that the Moabites were overcome with great fear. As a result, Balak, the king of Moab, summoned Balaam, a pagan prophet, to come and curse Israel so that he might be able to defeat them and drive them out from the land. Unfortunately for Balak, the Lord would not permit Balaam to curse his people for Balak. And instead, Balaam blessed Israel, not once, twice, or even three times. In chapters 22 through 24, Balaam blesses the people of Israel as the Lord directed him four different times. And in those pronouncements of blessing from Balaam, we get a beautiful description of God's people. For example, in verse 9 of chapter 23, we read that Israel is a people dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. And then in 23, verse 21, it says, They neither see misfortune nor misery, for the Lord their God is with them. And then in verses twenty. And 23, in chapter 23, it reads, No sorcery or divination could succeed against Israel, for the Lord had blessed them, and he has not changed his mind. And then in 23, verse 10, it reads, These people are the upright, among whom it would be a privilege to die. And then lastly, in verse 24 of chapter 23, we read that out of this chosen nation this glorious messianic king would rise to bring salvation for his people and judgment on all of God's enemies. And so with these beautiful words about God's people ringing in our ears, we now come to chapter 25. So hear now the reading of God's holy word. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were twenty-four thousand. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel was, who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Sulu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cozbi, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, which which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Thus is the reading of God's holy word. Now hopefully, after reading those beautiful descriptions of Israel in those previous chapters. We are all equally appalled by Israel's behavior in chapter 25. There's actually a lot about this chapter that we just read that is kind of confusing, but the one thing that we can say about it for certain is that Israel's behavior in this chapter does not match God's previous description of his people. The question then becomes for us, is there still any hope for Israel? Can they come back from this dreadful sin to be the people that God intended them to be? And if so, how? So as we take a closer look at this chapter, I want us to consider three important points. First, I want us to consider what it is that the people of Israel are guilty of, what exactly it is that Israel is guilty of. Second, I want us to consider how the people of Israel are rescued from the consequences of their sin. And then third, I want us to consider what the Lord commands the people of Israel to do afterwards. So first, let's look at verses one through three, and consider in greater detail what exactly the people of Israel are guilty of. In verse one, we read that while Israel lived in Shatim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, just in case you are wondering, Shatim is the name of a specific location within the plains of Moab, which would be the place of Israel's final encampment before crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land. And it's here at this most critical juncture in Israel's journey through the wilderness that we are told that the people of Israel begin to whore, that is to commit adultery with the daughters of Moab, who then entice the people of Israel to commit even greater acts of sin by sacrificing to the Moabite gods which we are told in verse 2 involved bowing down to idols and eating the food that was offered to them and by participating in all of this verse 3 explains to us that the people of Israel yoked themselves to Baal a Peor who was the god of fertility worshipped by the many tribes of people in that region. Now, it's important that we realize what this phrase yoked themselves means. It means that the people of Israel entered into a covenant with the God of Moab. They actually entered into covenant with a false god. Bible commentator Ian Duguid explains that this was nothing less than the Israelites' total abandonment of their status as the covenant people of God. He says the sexual immorality that preceded the idolatry provides a graphic picture of the underlying spiritual reality which the Israel was abandoning her true husband, the Lord, and was taking up a foreign lover. So in other words, not only did Israel commit physical acts of adultery, but more importantly, they committed a spiritual act of adultery against God himself. Now, perhaps you're asking yourself like me, why? Why in the world would Israel do such a thing? What is it that provoked them to commit such great sin against the Lord? Well, we find out later in chapter 31, verse, thir- uh, verse 16. And it, it explains that the women of Moab caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord on Balaam's advice. And so we learn that since Balaam could not get God to betray his own people by pronouncing a curse on them, that he would get the people of Israel to betray God by advising the Moabite women to seduce them. And so what we are seeing here then is a stark contrast between God's beautiful faithfulness towards his people on the one hand, which is depicted for us in chapters 22 through 24, and then Israel's grotesque unfaithfulness to the Lord as seen here in the first three verses of chapter 25. But let's get something straight. Just because Israel was seduced by the schemes of their enemy does not get them off the hook here, nor does it give them an excuse that justifies their behavior. For the truth is is that Israel had always been naturally inclined to commit adultery against the Lord. Even at the foot of Mount Sinai, just days after they had left Egypt, as Moses himself was receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord, without any coercion or seduction, the people of Israel committed adultery against the Lord all on their own by worshiping the golden calf, which they had made all by themselves. But in that instance, God in his mercy spared them from utter annihilation, and he graciously renewed his covenant with the people of Israel. Then in Exodus 34, he even warns Israel against making covenants with other peoples, lest they be enticed to make the same mistake and whore after other gods, bowing down to them and eating their sacrifices. This is the very thing that God had warned the people to be careful of and not to do. Obviously, the Israelites didn't learn from their past mistakes. This goes to show that the Israelites didn't have a Moabite problem so much as they had a sinful heart problem that was constantly inclined toward evil. Now, one can't help but be reminded here of what Paul says in Romans 1, where he writes, So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now that passage in Romans is a perfect description of Israel here in our chapter. After all, Israel most certainly knew God. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and led them through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land but they still in their hearts refused to honor him as God or give thanks to him. As a result, they were all too willingly led astray by the Moabite seductresses. And for this reason, instead of being the object of God's blessing and favor, Israel became the object of his fierce anger and just wrath, which as we find out in verse 9, he inflicted upon them with a deadly plague, which threatened to wipe out the entire Israelite camp. So, now let us move on to consider how Israel is saved from the consequences of their sin. In verse 4, we are told that the Lord instructed Moses to take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord in order that his fierce anger may turn away from Israel. Now one important thing to note here is that commentators disagree about who this word chiefs is referring to. Some some seem to think that this refers to the leaders of Israel, while others seem to think that it only refers to the leaders of this particular rebellion. Personally, I'm more inclined to think that it refers to the leaders of this particular rebellion. And the reason I think that has to do with verse 5. In verse 5, Moses instructs the judges to kill the men who yoke themselves to Baal of Peor. Now, the important thing to remember here is that way back, according to Exodus chapter 18, the chiefs of Israel, who Moses appointed over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, were to judge the people at all times. In other words, the chiefs of Israel were also the judges of Israel. And if that's the case, verse 5 would seem to imply that Moses himself is not following God's instructions in our passage. Instead of hanging the chiefs in the sun, in verse 5 he's giving them orders to kill every man in the camp. Which, of course, is not what God wanted. In verse 4, God does not instruct Moses to kill every man in the camp. He instructs Moses to hang the chiefs. Now, all of this would suggest that Moses himself was being defiant and directly disobeying God's orders. The problem with that interpretation is that our text never condemns Moses or even hints that he was being disobedient here. So in light of all this, I think it makes more sense for us to translate the word chiefs in this passage as leaders, which is what the the NASB does, the New American Standard Bible. And I think it's good for us to assume that when God tells Moses to hang the leaders, he's referring to the leaders of this rebellion. And if that's the case, then the judges in verse 5 would be an entirely distinct group of men. And Moses would then be complying with God's orders rather than defying them, which I personally think is the better way to understand the text. But either way, the important thing to notice here is that as harsh as this punishment may sound, God is really being merciful. We need to appreciate the fact that our text seems to imply that all or most of the people of Israel were caught up in this sin. But instead of wiping out the nation of Israel from off the face of the earth, God preserves his people by only punishing the leaders But what's even more important for us to appreciate here is that God is giving his people a way to atone for their sins. Now atonement refers to the turning away of God's wrath and restoring people to a right relationship with their Lord. Now the typical way that Israel atoned for their sins was through the offering of animal sacrifices. But in this instance, Israel's sin was so great that the only way the wrath of God could be satisfied is through the death of those responsible. Now, as we read this text, we would suspect that the people of Israel would be in a hurry to carry out God's orders in order to prevent this plague from wiping them all out. But strangely enough, that's not what happens. Instead, in verse uh, verse 6, we read, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, this verse suggests, and most commentators agree here, that for whatever reason, the commands of God and of Moses were not, obeyed. Perhaps the people just didn't have the nerve or the heart to do what was necessary. And so instead of doing what the Lord required, they gathered in front of the tabernacle and started weeping. Meanwhile, as that was going on, there were still others in the camp like the man in verse 6 who continued to fornicate with the Moabite women. And some commentators suggest that since this text specifically mentions that this man brought this woman to his family, that that implies that this was actually a wedding procession, which of course would mean that there was still a large number of Israelites who were not only unrepentant, but still celebrating their sin. So the picture that we are seeing here is a divided Israelite camp that's either too weak or too depraved to save themselves from the mess that they had gotten into. Even Moses himself seems helpless to do anything about the situation. And so at this point, all hope seems lost for Israel. That is, until the text introduces us to Phineas, who was the grandson of Aaron, the former high priest. In verse 7, we are told that when Phineas saw this man take the Moabite woman into his tent, that he got up and followed them into the bedchamber and thrust his spear through their bellies. And by doing so, we are told in verse 13 that Phineas made atonement for the people of Israel and saved them from the plague, but not before it had killed twenty four thousand Israelites. In other words, Phinehas saved the people of Israel from the consequences of their sin before they were all destroyed, and restored them to a right relationship with God. But what exactly was it about Phinehas that made him capable to atone for Israel's sin all on his own? Well, first and foremost, it had to do with his office. Phinehas was the son of the high priest Eleazar, which meant that he himself was a priest. And as the priest, Phineas was qualified to serve as a mediator between God and man. And as a priestly mediator, it was Phineas's job to serve as a people's representative before God and to offer sacrifices in order to atone for their sin. But in this particular case, the sacrifice he offered was not the blood of bulls and goats— But those but the blood of those who had profaned the name of the Lord. But the real reason why this sacrifice was accepted by God has to do with the attitude of Phineas's heart. In verse eleven we read that Phineas did what he did because he was consumed with God's jealousy. Now, here we need to be careful in how we talk about the jealousy of God. Typically, we think of jealousy as a sort of envious resentment towards others. But that is not what, this, what our text is talking about. The word for jealousy in verse 11 can best be translated as zealous. And if you're zealous about something, it means that you're passionately pursuing a cause or an objective. And in the case of Phineas, he was zealous to honor God as holy in the same way that the Lord is zealous to honor himself as holy. In other words, as Israel's priestly mediator, he was taking up God's cause on behalf of the people because no one else would. And for this reason, in verses 12 through 13, God rewarded Phineas with a covenant of peace, which meant that Phineas and his descendants would have a perpetual, that is an ongoing, priesthood. Meaning that the high priest would always come from Phineas' family line from now on. So not only does Phineas save Israel in this particular instance, but he also secures for Israel the guarantee of future priestly mediators so that Israel will always have someone there to make atonement for their sin and reconcile them to God. So then, now that Phineas has saved the people of Israel from the consequences of their sin, I want to just take a few moments to consider what the Lord commands Israel to do afterwards. In verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, harass the Midianites and go strike them down. Now, if Phineas has already made atonement for the people of Israel and their relationship with the Lord is restored, why is striking down the Midianites necessary? Well, I think that when we first read this, our natural inclination is to think that the Lord is just telling the Israelites to get revenge. And to some extent, the Lord is punishing his enemies here. That is what's going on. But that's not all there is to it. The reason why the Lord has Israel strike down the Midianites is to ensure that Israel does not fall back into the same sin. In other words, it's about eliminating all future opportunities for Israel to commit that same sin. It's about making sure that there is no occasion for further temptation. This is what true repentance looks like. For example... If a husband is addicted to pornography, repentance is not simply a matter of saying sorry to his wife. Real repentance is saying sorry and cutting off all further occasions to ever sin against your wife again. It looks like not giving yourself free access to the internet. It looks like ditching your smartphone for a flip phone. That's what real repentance looks like. And that's what the Lord is asking Israel to do here. He's asking Israel to choose him over their Midianite and Moabite mistresses. Second, by giving this command, the Lord is asking Israel to follow the example set for them by their priestly mediator. Phineas was so consumed with the Lord's zeal that he put to to death those that profaned God's name. And now God is requiring that all of Israel do the same by putting to death those responsible for causing them to act treacherously against God. In other words, God wants all people to be consumed with his zeal to honor him As holy. Or to put it yet another way, God wants the hearts of his people and their desires to reflect his own. And that's all I really have to say about that last point. But now I want us to consider how this passage applies to us and our situation. How does a story like this apply to our lives? Well, hopefully you've picked up on hints of it. That Israel's experience in this chapter is a mirror of our own. Like Israel in the wilderness, we are guilty of rebelling against God in order to pursue our own desires. As a result, like Israel, we have been sentenced to die under the wrath and curse of God. We need to remember that we live constantly under a divine curse. We suffer things like sorrow, sickness, and death because we are wasting away under God's wrath for rebelling against him and choosing our way over his. Our situation is no different than Israel's. But this is not how things are meant to be. And sadly, like Israel, we are all too weak and too depraved to save ourselves from the consequences of our sin or to make things right with God all on our own. Therefore, like Israel, we need someone who is consumed with zeal to honor God as holy, who can make atonement on our behalf. What we need is a priestly mediator who can restore us to a right relationship with God. And blessed be the name of the Lord, this is exactly what we have been given in the perfect God man, Jesus Christ, whose zeal for his father's house was demonstrated when he drove out the money changers from the temple with a whip of cords and f- overturned all their tables. But unlike Phineas, Christ did not make atonement by spilling the blood of evildoers. Instead, Christ identified himself with the evildoers and allowed himself to be pierced for our transgressions when he suffered and died on the cross in our place. Christ is also unlike Phineas in that the atonement that he made for his people is permanent. It's never to be undone. God's people, once restored, are always restored. And there never needs to be anything offered ever again for further atonement. Hence, Christ doesn't need descendants who can carry on his priesthood after him. Because Christ holds his priesthood forever in the presence of God, where he now lives continually to intercede for us, thereby making eternal life possible for anyone who puts their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And finally, like Israel, real repentance is a matter of uniting ourselves to our Savior by being consumed with the same zeal that he had to honor his father as holy by cutting off all future opportunities to sin. This is why Christ tells us in his sermon on the mount that if our right eye causes us to sin, that we should tear it out and throw it away. He says, for it is better to lose one of our members than for our whole body to be thrown into hell. As Christians, we are to give no opportunity to the devil. We are no, to give no opportunity to our adversaries so that we might be tempted to sin further against God. And so we are to cut off. We are to destroy sin. We are to mortify our fleshly desires day by day. Just because we claim to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, that does not give us an excuse to keep on sinning. And I think many, many of us tend to, if not think that, behave that way. We take it for granted that we are forgiven, and so we continue to do the things that we are not to do. In fact, but the truth is that if we continue to sin, even after we have come to know Christ, we are once again guilty of dishonoring the Lord. Because by doing so, we demonstrate that we do not truly value for what he's done for us. Every time we choose sin over Christ, we are saying that sin, that particular thing is better than what God has given us. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. They were on the precipice of entering the promised land and they were saying, we want to be friends with the world. We want to Delve into the sin. We want to experience the pleasures of our carnal desires. They gave up a land flowing with milk and honey in the presence of a holy and almighty God for their own sin. And that is what we do, isn't it? When we continue to do the very things that we know we ought not to do, we are choosing those things over and above God and treating Christ, Christ as trivial, as less valuable. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he writes that this exact story in Numbers 25 took place as an example for us. Chapter 10, verse 6, 1 Corinthians, he says that this happened in Numbers 25 as an example for us so that we would learn from Israel's failures and not repeat their mistakes. May we never be described as God's people. May we never take the name of Christ for ourselves and continue to live in an evil and unworthy manner and therefore dishonor our Savior. We need to pray that we would be consumed with zeal for God's holiness. That we would live each day zealously before the Lord to show His worth, to show His greatness. May that be our prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Dear gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in Numbers 25 that you have set down for us as an example to teach us, Lord, what it is that we are not to do. Lord, we are sorry for every time that we have consciously and defiantly chosen sin over obedience to you. Lord, please forgive us for there is nothing that we can do to earn your forgiveness, but we rest in Christ who's made atonement for us once and for all by dying for the very sin that we do and paying the penalty for it. And it's in his name that we come to you this evening and that we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that your whole, you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we might be transformed more into his likeness. Lord, help us to be zealous, to honor you in all things as holy, as infinitely worthy above anything else in this life. May you be glorified in your people and through your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.